I hope we're feeling appropriately gangster enough on this week's yeah. topic. Dr. Dwayne. Hello. Hello, everybody. Welcome. Um, so we have Hello. a Hello. It's so nice to see you again. Nice to Another be back. Session. Another session. Um, okay, so this is our third week and we've got a new topic this week, which is critical thinking. And I have um, prepared some little um, tidbits that I hope everyone will find very appetizing to think about and will um, promote lots of good, healthy discussion. So, um, Pippi, did you have a friend who was coming along today? Yes, she said she was coming, but I don't know. She, I sent, I sent her the link. Awesome. But she might, maybe she doesn't have um clubhouse. She might. Yeah. Be, I'm not sure. She hasn't written to me, so it's all good. She's got, she's got a little kid, so she maybe. Yeah. If she, if she does join us, she will join us. But it's yeah. yeah. We might have a couple of other friends join us later. On. Yeah, I've had two people express interest, so hopefully we have more than just us. Core four, but the core four is enough for beautiful conversations, so it should be good anyway. The dream team. The dream team. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing is that you guys like kind of worked on you know, trying to get more followers. Yeah. It's easy for you to get more, like especially the moderator. It's easy for him to like, or her to let them know that this thing is happening and then there will be more people. That sounds like a job for Abishay. I, I like to <laughs> because that's where like you have real conversations yeah like we always do in these rooms so beautiful yeah, i think it shouldn't be more than 10 or 15. okay well maybe abishay could work on getting more followers um because he yeah, should be the social media marketing he, he's definitely yeah he's definitely he's our face <laughs> we need him. <laughs> okay, let's launch into it. Woo! Ding dong, ding a ding, ding. I don't know any of the other words of that song, but it's enough. Okay, so critical thinking. If you really learn how to think, how to pay attention, then you will know, sorry, then you will know you have other options. If you actually, it will actually be within your power to experience a crowded, hot, slow, consumer hell type situation as not only meaningful, but sacred, on fire with the same force that lit the stars. Love, fellowship, the mystical oneness of all things. The above quote is called, this is is called This Is Water. It's from a clip called This Is Water, and it was delivered to Kenyan college graduating class by David Foster Wallace in 2005. It still resonates today. So I, I had an argument last night with my mother, and this is not last night anyway. I wrote this about a month ago or two months ago, so forgive me for the timing. Um, with my mother concerning the role of institutions in delivering education. The conversation went something like this. Mum, 
We need institutions in order to help regulate the bad in society and enable the good. Me. Regulations only serve the interests of the top-powered echelon of society, meanwhile handcuffing the rest of us to complete powerlessness while we hurtle towards certain doom. Mum. That's way too dramatic. Educational institutions are the necessary gatekeepers needed to ensure the credentials of knowledge creators. Me. Okay, and who gatekeeps them? What interests do institutions serve? Mum. Institutions spread critical thinking. Me, yeah, to the privileged few who can afford it. Mum, Australia is an anti-intellectual uh, nation of sport lovers and our current institutions of critical thinking are already under attack. We need to empower them, listen to them. Me, that's because the dominant media responsible for culture creation is all a controlled institution. The Murdoch media, responsible for, manu for manufacturing di diversions of attention, the institution is the problem. Mum, without critical thinking, we would live in a society of Trumps. Me, and yet our current model, model defunds humanities in place of STEM. Mum, they disempower the humanities because the humanities have an impact. Me, the impact of the unemployable arts degree graduate with a stacked hex debt. And then I have a question, and I hope that this has triggered some thoughts. I know it's been quite a bit, um, but what are your views on this? Do you side with my mother's view that we need educational institutions to be the gatekeepers of critical thinking, or do you think that en masse critical thinking will improve with more democratic models of educational access? I was just going to say, Lenny, that um, <laughs> I love how you're framing it as, um, do I really agree with you? Or <laughs> <laughs> Don't make a mistake, it's fine. That's a really I, good I, point, I, but you I, have to choose. I, I, yeah, you know, it's interesting because you, you're, I know your mum is a teacher within the current system, so. I imagine there's also quite an emotional element to that defence of the um, of that model because it is, it is you know um, I understand yeah I hear what she's saying about that uh, intellectualism being under attack already and so we need to you know bolster that you, I can not that I necessarily agree but I I can empathise with somebody who is in that position because that's their um, that's their world, I guess. Mm. But yeah, I, I it, that's, it is a really good and valid question, I think, of who are the gatekeepers of knowledge and who um, whose interests are being served. And, um, you know, it's, it's not just one or the other, like um, in terms of, um, uh, you know, education versus, um, you know, not having, Education. If we abolish institutions, or if we question, it's not even it's not even a question of abolishing institutions. It's actually just questioning, questioning the power within the institutions and where the power comes from, the history of those institutions, and why those institutions are in power. Why are they so powerful, mm. and how do they replicate and reinforce what you know the existing kind of dominant. Um, dominant discourses in our society. So that was all I was going to say. 
I think you absolutely nailed that, um, Pippi, because actually I'm reading this book, um, which I'm 76% of the way through, but it's called Moneyland, and it's basically been about this trend by the super wealthy in society since the 1950s, 1960s, to basically... Um, hide their money in these very complex offshore, offshore structures and then force these different nation states to compete by deregulating, by making laws and structures that are much more accommodating to um, rich people living there or investing their money there. And I think educational institutions are just one of many institutions that have had to adapt to a changing environment where there is this incredibly growing of inequality between the wealthy and the not wealthy and the world is catering to this super wealth like they just they are controlling um they have controlling interests in whatever they do um and i think like i i've i've reviewed my thoughts and i I definitely empathise with my mother because she's done a lot of really good thinking and she's she works um, as a teacher for teaching language uh, English as a second language um, and as part of teaching that, you know, she deals with a lot of refugee kids, she deals with a lot of kids who have come from, who haven't had the same educational privileges, and she's quite adamant about um, being a voice for these less empowered in the world. Like, she's not, <laughs> she's not defending an evil institution, but it's like, where, where does the moral path lie anymore if our institutions can get bought up? Um, and whose interests do they serve? So I guess that's the real question at the heart of this um, this set of questions on critical thinking, although we will go to other places. And I just want to say um, hi to Manny, not to single you out, but it's nice to see you in the room as well. Um, hi, to Manny. I'm Callum. We're all so good. Manny. Uh, and Callum are two people I work with. We work together. They're all organizations and they have. Uh, I'd like Callum to come up on stage and introduce himself and also, if that's all right. And Manny, if you would feel comfortable to introduce yourself, then you can do so. Otherwise, Hi. <laughs> Uh, yes, so I think let's quickly introduce ourselves so everybody knows who we're dealing with here. Hi, I'm not. Can you guys hear me? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, I haven't used this app to like talk before, uh, but I'm Manny. I work with Abishay um, and Callum for Tulajor, and yeah, we do um, bush regeneration. I also went to TAFE for the winter um, and did my conservation land management certificate three there, so that's sort of how I know these guys. Um, I'm more just here to sort of like listen in to what you guys have to say. But yeah, I'll definitely chime in if I have anything. Wonderful to hear you. If you'd like to come up, uh, you've got to raise your hand, which is at the bottom right corner, and then I'll uh, invite you in as a speaker. Okay. I'm not sure what just happened. I think I left, but I'm back now. I'm going <laughs> to mute myself again. I think so. I think so. Okay. So I think we should respect that. It's not... Necessary. Uh, hello. Can you guys hear me now? Perfect. Yes, so, uh, just to understand how the app works, uh, I'm normally muted until I'm uh, joined in. Raise my hand. As a speaker. Yes. 
So now, now, now all you have to do is mute your mic when you're not speaking. But if you have a point to raise, then you can obviously unmute and uh, speak up. It's like um, they, call, they call it popcorn style. It's not. We don't follow an order. We just go. Anybody. So Alenta is going to ask a few questions, but in the middle of her, uh, in, in the middle of the conversation, if you have any questions or any points to add, guys, you can just. Uh, uh, probably start by unmuting yourself and yeah, asking a question or saying anything you want. If you flash your so mic... You to introduce yourself? So yeah, no worries. Yeah, so my name is Callum. Um, I'm 24 years old. Uh, anyway, personal info, not that relevant. I work with Abishé and Manny as well, the Tula Jua. Um, I'm a keen uh, nature-minded person. Uh, it's very much at the forefront of my mind all of the time, as well as sort of deep philosophical uh, ideas. I love diving into that sort of thing and having conversations with people. And I think Tula Jua is a great place to do that. I really enjoy working with Abishay and Manny and having good conversations amongst the work, doing good work, having good conversations. Um, and I'm similar in Manny to the respect that I'm sort of here to listen in. Uh, and if I feel like I have something to say, I'll definitely chime in. Um, but I'm all about uh, getting together and talking about these sorts of topics. So uh, good on you guys. Got my respect. Um, and Beautiful. I'm interested in what you have to say. Beautiful. Do you just quickly want to tell us your you're writing a thesis on something? Can you just give us a brief description? Yeah. That's okay. Yeah, sure. Definitely. So. I'm in the last uh, final editing stages of writing my master's research thesis um, and I did this at Western Sydney University up at the Hawkesbury campus and my thesis, my thesis topic uh, was researching the impacts of coal mine wastewater pollution wow. in the Blue Mountains on Sprutus there. So I was investigating the changes to water chemistry uh, basically brought on by heavy metals discharged by the mines. Um, and these uh, chemicals, these metals, cause uh, a wide variety of ecosystem impacts. They get in the, they get into the bodies of animals and uh, impair the reproductive functions and motor functions. And yeah, I can talk about it for hours, but basically, they, uh, the marine wastewater causes ecological damage, and my research has been mapping that damage out, and then also posing the question forward: How can we use regulation? Uh, to protect these waterways. So how do we enforce, say, restrictions on metals that are allowed to be discharged to the environment? Um, like, asking these questions, how can we stop this or minimise the damage done by the wastewater uh, to the environment? Uh, and it's been a big journey. It's been awesome. I've learned a lot. And it's been a very powerful uh, topic to sort of research and spend some of my life uh, invested in. So That's it's been a mm. great time. Beautiful. He uh, he's due to be publishing his uh, thesis. On. Is that right, Cal? Yeah, that's right. Um, so I think next month is when I'll be submitting it. Um, I've published two scientific papers uh, that are two different chapters within my thesis. One of them is already published, and the second one is being published later this year. Um, and they're both on two different river systems: the Barga River down south near Picton and the Wollongambi River, which is in the Greater Blue Mountains World Heritage Area. So. Both in yeah. Sydney, Ashik. So Ashik, guys, Ashik is my twin brother, Manny and Cal. Oh, good day. 
Uh, I just want to say quickly, this is a bit off topic, but uh, Manny and Alinta went to TAFE together, which I did not, we obviously did not know, so I worked with her the second time, and then we were talking about TAFE, where I did my course uh, on conservation and land management as well, and then we just found out that uh, Manny knew Alinta, so uh, the three of us now know each other. And then uh, Karen, I want to give him the credit because he uh, is helping raise collective consciousness at work. He's the guy that's promoting Sam Harris's meditation app <laughs> called the Waking Up app. And he's smashing it because everybody now is into it. We at Tobiju are spreading the message and raising this collective uh, conscious awareness. Thanks to Karen. That's beautiful. Anyways, uh, sorry, Manny. Yeah, um, I'm a part of the Waking Up app following, thanks to Callum. <laughs> and yeah, it's really made a big impact on my life and just sort of the way that um, I examine my own mind. It's not really right. something that we're taught to do. Mm. Yeah. Um, Alinta and me yeah. have gotten into it a lot. Ashik, I've just sent him the app and he, he was, he was uh, uh, sort of practicing another form of meditation called Vedic meditation. So now he, uh, he just wants to have a glimpse of what Sam Harris is like. And then I've sent my dad the app. He's loved it. So there you go. Uh, Pip, I'll probably send you uh, <laughs> If you'd like, Patrick, uh, if you can try it, it's fucking phenomenal. I just think everybody in the world needs to uh, just know their mind more, uh, get involved uh, uh, with your intricate self a little bit more. Anyways, guys, thank you for introducing yourselves, Callum and Manny. Honestly, a pleasure to have you guys here. We've had this room twice before. This is the third time. So today we're talking about critical thinking. You guys. I'm late again. Okay. You guys are late to work and you're late here. So I'm just kidding, guys. All good. So you haven't missed out on a lot. We were talking. So, Lenny, uh, do you just want to give them a quick rundown of what you spoke about? Just a brief, and then we'll get back to we'll continue with our topic. Absolutely. So I just want to say a big welcome to both Manny and Callum. Um, Callum, your research uh, master's sounds fascinating and I'm sure that one of these weeks, if you're interested, we'd love to talk, do a deeper dive into that topic. It's definitely aligned with the kinds of things that we've covered before. So um, we do do environmental thinking here. We do philosophy, or at least I do. Um, our previous room was on multi-species justice and that um, fostered some really amazing, deeply analytical conversation that was super inspiring to be a part of. Um, this week, it's on critical thinking, but we were talking about mindfulness and I think that the way that we think <laughs> is um, is controlled by our ability to be mindful in the way that we think and to control our thoughts and to pay attention. So I think all of these topics are very interrelated. Um, what this topic will be jumping around and doing today is that we'll be talking about the institutions where we learn how to critically think 
And what I was uh, discussing earlier and Kip chimed in on was a conversation that I had with my mother, which is basically around whether our current institutions um, that control the credentialism for who is a good thinker and who is a worthy scholar to be listened to um, are really, one, teaching us the critical thinking skills that we need, um, or and and that will be covered like I'll delve a little bit more into different aspects of that and tease out different aspects of that um, and then the second face of that is um, that we already kind of touched on is um, for for what purpose is our learning system currently created for so there is a certain um, orthodoxy that our society is governed with it's um it, it, i touched upon the fact that i'm reading things about the super rich controlling a lot of aspects of society and having a lot of policy made to serve their interests and i think that the defunding of humanities degrees and the kind of glorification of the stem discipline is a is a way of kind of encouraging um, ways of thinking that are non-critical of current governing structures um, because someone who is doing a mechanics or engineering degree is going to learn how to make things work, how to build a bridge, how to operate um, a, a dam system. They're not going to necessarily deeply delve into the power relationships that exist or even the toxic metals that um, are running downstream from a coal mine. So I think that more than ever, we need to have the tools and the skills and the information available to us. So hopefully Clubhouse can be a space where that kind of conversation um, can happen. And just a ground rule, uh, not really a rule, but if you really resonate with something a speaker is saying or if you want to speak, you can flash your mic by turning it off and on. Um, and Abishay is our amazing, magnificent moderator, so he can kind of um, field the questions as they come up. But the way that I have been doing this and hopefully will continue to work is I read about a paragraph or a couple of paragraphs of, of work that I've put together um, and hope and then ask a question and hopefully it's brought up some thoughts and that can lead down whatever rabbit trail to whatever different thoughts and usually the conversation is really interesting so hopefully it'll be a really rewarding experience for everybody. Um, so I'm just going to dive into it. I'm just going to quickly add. So I think flashing your mics uh, uh, before you want to speak would be a bad idea because, I mean, the norm is that on Clubhouse, if you're flashing your mics, it means that uh, you are in agreement or uh, it's kind of, uh, you're just praising someone's uh, opinion or stuff like that. So I just say, if you want to have a chat, just open your mics and say, say that you want to say add a point or something and we'll we'll then come back to you is that all right if you if you've understood that flash your mics beautiful okay awesome. so, 
I am going to launch into the rest of it. I have two and a half thousand words that I've written. Um, so hopefully we've got enough to keep us going. And if we don't finish it this week, we always have next week. But hopefully it's um, it can start us off with some interesting thoughts. Um, so to go back to the argument that myself and my mother had, it was a pretty heated argument and it was safe to say that other than clearing the cobwebs of some cherished beliefs, there was not a lot of consensus found in this whole conversation, but I slept on it. And after another follow-up conversation with mother this morning, and this was written maybe two months ago, so, you know, time is a relative thing. I found some common ground. Harvard University published an analysis of principle versus position-based argumentation. What my mother and I were engaged in last night was a position-based argument. For me to be right, my mother had to be wrong, and for her to be right, I had to be wrong. And we very quickly found ourselves going nowhere in the conversation, though it was emotionally cathartic release of saying one's true feeling, and that was nice. Principle-based argumentation is a different style of conflict resolution, one that looks at the principles behind the position you take in an argument and seeks a consensus in the first principles of your decision-making. For example, the consensus that my mother and I found this morning is that we both think education is the best means for spreading critical thinking throughout a society. And then I have a little question for everybody. Um, and you can open your mics if you'd like to answer. And the question is, can you think of a personal example of an issue where you've had to reach a compromise through principle-based discussions? And if not, I can march on. Okay, so the difference in our opinions is that my mother believed that credentialism via institutions was the only way to achieve an educated society. Whereas I believe that these institutions blocked the democratization of education that would see a greater proportion of the population gain access to the critical thinking that education provides uh, is, a, is a vector for in providing. I further believe that education delivered by an institution gatekeeps skills and not in a positive way. Brand, prestige, power, money are all dependent upon that institution being the only vector of knowledge and young people are increasingly saddled at the beginning of their lives with unpayable student debts in order to simply learn the skills of thinking required for navigating the complex world they were born into. How much better would it be if critical thinking could be taught through more democratised vectors, say, podcasts? How much better would society be once we take the silos of ignorable information educational institutions now represent and democratise access to this knowledge, these skills, throw away copyright? And what happens without credentialism? Well, what makes someone inherently more worth listening to than another person? Nothing innate, surely. It is the functionality of someone's value system, the rigour of their logical reasoning. And if we are all thinking and feeling functionally, there should be no need for a top-down credential to tell us that someone's point of view is worth respecting. In Indigenous cultures, elders are recognised in a very organic way for their service of thought and feeling to their community and the wider environment. Do we need an institution with its arbitrarily created power structures to tell us what are good thoughts or not? Surely that's the perfect description of brainwashing. And look, this might not be true, 
this may not be accurate and this is why I would really like to have a discussion about it because I wrote this when I was feeling very passionate about <laughs> about the topic but doesn't mean I was correct in the way I was thinking. Um, so I have a question, another question and the question is what is your opinion about what would happen without the credentialism of educational institutions? Is there a different way of ensuring that people with different voices uh, are heard than those that our current system and systems of thought privileges? Could you repeat your question one more time, Alinta? Sure. So what is your opinion about what would happen without the credentialism of educational institutions? And then is there a way for different voices to get heard beyond these institutional credentials? I definitely think that there are, um, we need to, there are voices outside the, maybe the, I don't know, current, um, Academic, I don't know if academic is the right word, but you know, like there are, there are definitely, uh, there definitely needs to be a listening to of more diverse um, voices on issues, especially pertaining to um, First Nations peoples. Um, as in, I'm, I think what I'm trying to say is that we, we, um, our, our educational systems in this country are like built on you know, a very uh, strong foundation of colonialism. And that's something, I guess, that's being challenged uh, and has been challenged for a long time by first nations individuals. Um, I think thinking more broadly, I mean, it's just such a huge question because on the one, yeah, there's, there's that issue. And there's also uh, maybe the issue of, um, if you're thinking about the time right now with coronavirus and um, a lot of the misinformation that's going on, that that's sort of like a... I'm just thinking, like, really um, quite maybe too broadly about this question, but I'm, yeah, it's, it's, it's so good, Pip. It's so um, it's so broad. Like, there's there's obviously problems with with when you know people aren't people aren't able to critically analyze information, and information is coming from people without maybe the knowledge, the appropriate knowledge mm. to disseminate about something like. I don't know vaccines, for example, mm. um, and then and then and then there's other issues about you know the the real need for um, voices that have been silenced for many years to be heard, and that's and that's sort of like a separate. I would say that that's like a separate thing. So I'm I yeah I do definitely don't have an answer to that, mm. <laughs> but I I'm just thinking out loud. I guess about you know there's. That, that's yeah. It's a huge, a really a huge, huge area of discussion, and I think that each of those, all you know, all the different parts of that would have very different kind of ways of discussing that. I don't know if that was clear at all. <laughs> I think that that was beautifully but, um, said, and I think that where my primary concern lies is. I think you're right that um, some knowledge requires specialisation, like vaccination, like a lot of medical um, uh, 
professions that require a very distinct knowledge of, of anatomy and the way that different parts and components in the body interact. Even the masters that Callum has done where he's learning about um, different toxic metals and he's writing on that and I'm sure that that uses specialized software to track the flows and all of that stuff, I guess the more technical aspects require someone who um, has has done the appropriate level of training. But I guess where I get caught up and thinking that education becomes a gatekeeper is that people have, um, it, it is a question of democracy and democratic voice uh, voice sharing because a lot of people have a lot of things happen that are beyond their control and they're told that unless they get this credential or that credential, their voice is not worth hearing. So I guess the more social aspects, um, I, I happen to think that there is a lot of worth in reading deeply and widely about these social things, but people have an opinion about their life and a lot of um, the politics that's happening in America where people were following Trump or where he had such a large mainstream appeal was because he didn't dress things up in jargon. He spoke to people in a very common language. He, it wasn't about people being tricked by lawyers or accountants or anyone else with this specialized, professionalized knowledge where they were seen to be as better than another part of the population. So I think that, that you know, um, education can play a massive class-based role and it can prevent some voices. And I think Indigenous voices are a huge, like particularly with learning how to be more sustainable with our management practices in the environment and even in a spiritual way how to connect with our local environments. There is so much that we can be taught in a non-Western way of thinking um, and connecting and yet the only way that we can recognise credibility of Indigenous voices is if they've gone through a Western education system. And to me, that just seems seems ridiculous that there's not other ways of knowing that can be privileged. Um, I would like to add as well, I think that it's, it's such a tricky thing because I think a lot of these regulations about, um, like, information who's sort of giving us facts and who's spreading misinformation and disinformation... Um, I think, like, uh, a good way of sort of, like, stamping out some of that disinformation that's out there is, like, regulations and credentials and stuff like that. But also, on the other hand, it's like, are we not going to listen to people's lived experiences? Mm. Like, Indigenous land practices and all these sort of things that um, First, First Nations peoples have, like, extensive knowledge on through their lived experience, even though they haven't got, you know, Western credentials. Like, how do we sort of regulate that without um, silencing the voices of people who are living through these things? Mm. I, I think I agree. Um, the fact that uh, in current-day society... Uh, for you, you've got to have a credential. You've got to have. You've got to be educated to have an opinion. 
that that is heard and then to be acted upon is a bit unfair. Like uh, with Manny's point and what Pip uh, was trying to say, um, it, it all comes down to again community based. I think it comes down to community based uh, way of thinking where. Um, Say, for example, um, you don't need to have a master's degree or a bachelor's degree to understand uh, uh, lived experiences of uh, the First Nations people. All you need is a community based around them, and you learn your basic skills, and you learn um, you learn a lot of life credentials from that. So, and I think the world functioned better. Let's be honest, the world was a better place and functioned better. And was much safer uh, when uh, indigenous people who who've been around for thousands of years uh, doing all sorts of uh, they call them hunter gatherers, but they're also extremely intelligent uh, uh, people. The fact that they they did not have access to technology and could do so much with nature, just around nature, is quite fascinating. And I think. Uh, I think community is definitely aware. But again, coming back to credentials, I think credentials are important as well. In terms of research, unless you you're gonna take your time and effort without going into a you know, going into a university and doing a certain research all by yourself, and then for you to prove that you've again got to have someone supporting you, and if that come doesn't come off a university, people are that's not how society works, unfortunately. So it's a bit of a conundrum with uh, the necessity of credentials and uh, not have, not needing to have credentials. I think, but I think they're both important. I think it's um, it needs to be uh, synchronized. If that makes sense. I was thank you. Yeah, that uh, I really enjoyed listening to um, what you guys were all saying then. And I think yeah, I don't think it it needs to necessarily be an either or. I think it's um, I think it's really important to not only listen to the perspectives of people with lived experience, but honour that lived experience and um, amplify those voices and um, and also you know we need. We need to, I get we we need to make way for uh, people who've been for a long time. Uh, at least, if I just speak about the Australian experience, that you know, um, since colonisation, really systematic silencing of First Nations peoples and perspectives, um, which thankfully I I see I think things but. But not because of um, certainly um, white people and, <laughs> and the European descendants of, of people who came to colonising, but thanks to you know the incredible struggle of First Nations peoples that um, things are. I hope um, over a long term historical perspective, I hope um, changing. I don't know. Maybe that's really way too optimistic. But I. Um, but yeah, I do. I think it, that whole thing about this, this thing about um, credentials. Yeah, it's it's. There's so. I also think it's. There's. I think the credentials exist outside of um, uh, 
whatever um, the kind of, I don't know, whatever we're thinking like this university model. I think, with, you know, different cultures have their own way of, of I guess, um, appointing people as, um, you know, knowledge bearers and understanding that those people are, um, are uh, what was the word again? They're credentialed in a way, but it's just a different, a very different system. And I guess the problem that we have in the system, the like the dominant system in Australia is that we we afford so much more, um, first of all, we give opportunities to a select group of people um, and, and it's, there's all that gatekeeping that happens uh, and we also, um, we don't, uh, there, there's a sort of, I guess a hierarchy of knowledges which, you know, sometimes is necessary in terms of, you know, like, I guess, um, very pure scientific or mathematical knowledge, you know, um, but in um, other cases, maybe, yeah, not as warranted. But I also would say that within the, you know, scientific world, that you do need a, um, it's not, you know, I think lived experience is incredibly important within the scientific world because um, science does not exist within a vacuum, there's issues of all sorts of things. Like if we even, if we go thinking about these current issues of um, uh, vaccine hesitancy, for example, at the moment, uh, yes, the, you know, science is the vaccines are all safe and things, but we also have to understand that, you know, the history of, of how people in, uh, like First Nations peoples in Australia, for example, um, might have a, you know, mistrust of our, um, uh, medical system because of uh, the awful things that have been done um, in the name of our government um, and scientific institutions towards First Nations uh, people. And that's not to make a broad statement that, you know, there would be like, there's huge vaccine hesitancy amongst First Nations peoples because I don't know what the, what the you know, statistics are. I'm just wanting to say that I understand why there are um, why they, you know, there's a, there's a, um, you know, there's a need to understand different aspects outside of the purely scientific as well. Sorry for rambling. I don't know. I, I definitely agree. Look, I understand your hesitation when you're still making that point because the thing with vaccines is it's become a very political topic at the moment. Would, and I don't know, is that right to say? It, it has. It's become, very political. Yeah, at the moment and. Uh, they're just looking at it in one direction and I completely agree with, with the point that you made that they, they need to look uh, sort of out of the science paradigm as well mm. because these things didn't exist when uh, when uh, like plagues and uh, even the Spanish flu and all, all these things are very recent they didn't exist uh, when indigenous people lived there their way of life, you know. So there's there's advice that we can take from them as well. And like I said, there's let me come back and uh, talk about this. I just want to come up. There's an ethnobotanist. I forget his name. He spoke. I've mentioned this before. He spent a lot of time in uh, Central America uh, researching a lot of entheogens, like. Uh, psychedelic plants and he talks about how it's important to live a symbiotic relationship where you need western medicine but you also need uh, to understand uh, 
uh, Native American indigenous people around the world, they all have so much knowledge. They're knowledge bearers, like you said. And uh, it needs to be integrated, both these things. It can't be just one way. And that, and that sort of openness in uh, the current uh, society needs to exist as well. I think, and I have to say, Ashik, did you have to say something? Yeah, of course I did. Uh, I totally agree with that. What each of you had to say. But uh, correct me if I'm wrong and if I'm out of context. Uh, because I would like to speak more from the Indian perspective. Uh, so the education system here in India isn't the best, but it's not that it's also the worst. Uh, the thing, one thing that it lacks is diversity in education. So uh, what happens here is you're not actually taught how to survive, but you're prepared right from the days you know you you begin schooling and everything. You're taught how to you know land a white collar job, and that's why people here in India, especially in urban India. They, they don't look up to, you know, becoming or, or an electrician or whatever. They consider it as a blue-collar job, right? So people don't learn these things. So I remember once when I was traveling here in India and I met a few Europeans. And they told us, uh, uh, I think they were from Scan some Scandinavian country, maybe Finland or something. So they told us that right from school they're taught how to, you know, deal with various things like carpentry and so many other things. That actually teach them how to survive as they grow up. So then you can, you know, one day take care of your own things and you're independent. You're truly independent. You don't have to depend on anything. So I would look at it from that perspective because then you really become very experimental and you are not, your, your uh, thought process is not manipulated with things that you don't need to learn. Uh, for example, in history, we have taught about things. And taught about people we shouldn't even be knowing about it. <laughs> like it's funny that you are in India, you're taught about people who have nothing to do with our history, pertaining to our society. But then when you ask people about the history of our own country, nobody knows about it. And it's not a bad thing, but I, I would say that the education system here in India is very manipulative that way. Um, so, yeah, in a way, uh, education is necessary, but without education, I'm sure people will actually be able to, you know, uh, figure things out because that's how mankind has got your life. You've been very observant and we understood things only through observation and experimenting and actually not, you know, like having such education wouldn't actually do any harm because it's not like you're going to go back into the dark ages. Uh, to give you a small example, uh, Einstein, Albert Einstein, when he proved the uh, theory of relativity, uh, I'm sure you all know that he had no formal education or he had no background in science. And he was still able to do that being a librarian. Mm. And uh, if you have sort of read or watched about the story where, you know, where how he actually imagined the whole process and everything, that's actually critical thinking. He was actually locking himself up in a dark room and he used to only think about these things. And he actually, you know, like, he was extremely visual and he, you know, kind of like tried to imagine these things out and that's how he took the theory of relativity and all that without any formal education or background in science. So I'm sure that, you know, without any uh, formal education or anything, people will still be able to figure things out in that sense. Thank you. 
Um, I have so many things to respond to everything that everyone has said. Um, I will start with responding to you, Ashik. Um, I think as well as there being a democratization of voices, um, amateur, some amateurs are often brilliant and are often innovative and can offer insights in technology and DIY hacks or, you know, theories about relativity like Einstein and our current systems of credentialism, unless they've gone through a very specific curator path, it would lock those people out. Um, so I think, but again, if you let everybody, I guess if you have a, a lawlessness to who can think what and which voices we listen to, then you can get a lot of conspiracy theories equally. So there is some kind of um, uh, risk management, I guess, that our current systems of credentialism um are supposed to, to help re regulate so that voices have some modicum of respectability and ability to, uh, technical ability to have known what they're talking about. Um, and then the other thing that I really wanted to touch on is I just had an insight while Abby was speaking and Pippi was speaking, and that was um, with these voices that are locked out, Often it's a case of the Western system of science is right and other cultural ways of knowing are wrong or if they're not wrong, they're inferior. So to me, it's just an extension. It's like an ideological extension of the colonialism, the physical colonialism that has already happened. Now it's like, well, we've got ideas of how things work in the West and we know what reality is and it's based on this scientific paradigm or I know that religion was disseminated um, in the early years of, of colonialism to a lot of different countries. Um, but it's, it's, again, back to that principle versus position-based argumentation. Is there a way of taking the good uh, the good in the ways of thinking or the ways of knowing or the spiritual connectedness um, that other cultures, particularly indigenous cultures have and kind of um, coexisting or being symbiotic with them. Like, I think that that's truly what multiculturalism should look like. It's not just about having people of different skin color operating in the same population. It's, it's also got to be about ideology. It's got to be about ways of knowing, about ways of thinking, about spiritualities that can have equal respectability. And um, there's an example of this. In Arnhem Land, there's, um, it's, it's quite an undisturbed Indigenous population, Australian Indigenous population that live up there. And there's this video that they released in, in partnership with Macquarie University, which was all on Yolngu mathematics, which was based on the circularity of things um, and the patterns found in nature. And it was, type of, it was a type of mathematics that was very different to Western concept, concepts of mathematics. It was still mathematics, but it, the way that they related to numbers was different. There was connections, there was relationships. I don't know much about your new mathematics because I've been so conditioned with a Western style of understanding mathematics, but the fact that we think that there's only one 
type of mathematics that can exist has just shown that it's, you know, become universally dominant. Um, so I, I just think that there is space, like scientific knowledge has done wonderful things for our, for our knowledge and for our technologies. Um, but Western values of extra of, um, exploiting other cultures, uh, taking money as the only thing that has value, uh, dominating, enslaving. I think all of these things are terrible values that the West has exported to the rest of the world. So, you know, the West isn't all good. It's not all bad. And there's a lot of amazing things that they have contributed, but there should be space for other voices uh, and other ways of knowing. And currently, the institutions that are dominated, are dominant in the West, they lock out these other cultural modalities. And like you were saying, Ashik, like um, you're taught how well, people in India are taught how to get white collar jobs as if that's the only thing that they need for interacting in a world like the world isn't the West. The world should be more than just the West, I think. Yeah, I think India is Um, I am ready to keep going. Uh, just a quick one before you get back to it, guys. So it's been close to an hour, 55 minutes since we started the room. We generally go on for like two hours, so you guys can enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Um, hopefully you can hang in there and uh, hang out with us, actually. That's what I want to say. So I, I hope you can hang out with us until... 6 p.m. Australia time. Uh, if, if not, then please feel free to let us know that you have to be, we will be continuing this room uh, next week because it's a big topic and Alinta has written a lot about it. And yeah, so if you want to leave, just let us know. Have a good one. We'll be back to you. Okay. Um, so. In the last little extract that I read out, I talked about um, people being worthy of listening to, voices to be worthy of listening to if the way that they thought was reasonable and if their emotions were well regulated. And so I'm just going to go a little bit more into that. Um, and what if the majority of the population has dysfunctional patterns of thoughts or feelings? That might be true, but here's a radical idea. Let's be patient with such people. Let's, let's recognize dysfunction as neurosis and hold a safe harbor while these dysfunctional neuroses are found and rooted out. Um, da -da -da -da. There is no doubt that we are a deeply traumatized civilization built on disconnection to nature and each other and what I characterize as violent hierarchical relationships. It is no surprise to me then that the mass or mob is filled with hate, with vendetta and with chopped slurry for thoughts. But the beginning of the beginning product is not the end one. So I guess what I'm trying to talk about here is that a lot of people are really hateful in their speech. And it's like if we had much more demo, demo, democratized ways of hearing a lot of different voices, well, a lot of those voices are just filled with hate 
Um, so, so do we really want to hear those voices? And I think that the only way to deal with hate, um, which is at its root fear-based, is to be patient with it and allow it to transform and to create um to create trust and relationships of trust. And I think the West has done a lot to destroy trust through um, processes of colonialization. Um, and I have another question and is, do you think it will ever be possible to democratize knowledge? And as an extension, have respect, have respect for the masses opinions as being informed and well thought through. Could you please repeat the question? Sure. Um, do you think it will ever be possible to democratize knowledge and, as an extension, to have respect for the opinion of the masses and believe that the masses are both informed and well thought through in their opinions? Philippa, you want to go ahead, please? Oh, no, I just wanted Luni to repeat the question. <laughs> <laughs> you can go first. <laughs> well, I think I'm going to think for a bit and then answer. Anybody else have any questions? Uh, Luni, do you have, do you want to start? Do you have something to say? Sure, I can ramble. Yeah. Um, yeah. So... <laughs> Thank you. That's okay. So... I think that there's two problems that we might be facing. And one is that to have, to have respect for someone's opinion, they need technical knowledge. And to have respect for someone's lived experience, we have to know that they don't have a negative agenda towards our continued safety. So there's got to be trust in both their technical ability and trust um, in kind of like an emotional connection that there is a collective um, motivation for goodness. And I think that those two ingredients are, are the credentials that we need to look for in people. And I think if it comes to the masses, having both technical ability, um, then that calls for uh, skills-based knowledge and skills-based education being much more accessible and much cheaper to access. And I think if there were community-based contexts where people could share knowledge and share technical skill sets, then it wouldn't be so specialised and you wouldn't need to go through a five to eight traje educational trajectory to have that specialisation. There would be much more symbiosis within a population to the benefit of everybody in that population in a very technically skilled way. And then I think the same thing goes for trust building. If you know that the continued survival of the planet is dependent upon you not taking too much and you living within your means and you leaving enough for your community, then you're going to be very motivated to live in a very sustainable way and in a way that is that um, that prioritizes the emotional connections you have with your communities and your e ecologies as being more important than just making money off exploiting those people. And I think um, 
currently part of the problems that people are reacting to so violently and with so much anguish and hate and negative fueled emotion is that the people who are exploiting them, they don't belong to the set to that community. People who are super rich can fly all over the world to wherever there is the best tax haven or the best way um, to the best investment that's going to um, give them a return. They belong in gated communities. They fly, they helicopter. The relationships that they have to community and to place are non-existent. And what they have a relationship with instead is to money and to power. And when money and power become the things that give you emotional sustenance, then that is really two key ingredients for doing very nasty things to the rest of the world and the rest of society. Because I think our relationships not only nourish us, but they also regulate our behavior in a way that um, maybe laws do as well. But I think, I think, um, the regulation of a community, of a relationship with a community and a relationship with one's environment is stronger than an external law because it's an intrinsic uh, motivating factor. So I just think that we can democratise, um, we can listen to more voices and have a better, more transparent democracy and we don't have to be afraid that these voices are full of hate it's just about um, giving everybody more access to technical knowledge and more access to trust-based relationships with their communities and with their environments. But that is my very strongly held ideologically ideological view. Lily, can I ask you a question? So, uh, sure. I understand. I, I totally agree with what you said, but I'm sorry if I'm wrong. But don't you think if you had to... You know, you said this community-based education and all that. With all that, don't you think that your knowledge would be only limited to your community's network? Uh, the kind of knowledge that Not necessarily. Of course, unless we have that kind of exposure, I, I totally agree, but... I think that's a really good question. Um, but what I see it as is uh, local... Have you ever heard of microgrids? Um, so microgrids are basically, um, say, they're solar panels on people's houses and your community of maybe 10, 20 houses around you are all connected into a grid and so that grid gives each other power but then that microgrid is connected to another microgrid and that other microgrid also generates power and maybe you exchange across microgrids um, and maybe cumulatively there's an aggregate power from those two microgrids that feeds into like another node so it's not about each local community being totally removed from other communities i think the connections and um between communities is is intrinsic um and like, obviously, this society doesn't exist because we live in much larger kind of um, societal ecosystems. Um, but I, I don't think this model is exclusive of knowledge sharing across domains. But I think it just starts local and stays local and then has a relationship with a neighbour, kind of like a neural network. Yeah. Can I can I add a point? I just want to say that. So I just want to confirm, obviously, if you don't mind. 
So you mean basically it's more like a network uh, with the microgrid and all that you said. It's basically like a network. So whatever information or knowledge you have is equally distributed amongst the whole community. And whatever knowledge you acquire from outside is again equally distributed amongst the whole community is what you mean, right? I don't have a mature um, concept of what this model would look like, but I think a network approach would be how I see it occurring. And I think um, probably at the point of origin, there is stronger bases of certain types of knowledges um, and they spread to a certain degree, um, but probably not to the same degree as our global system spreads knowledge. So I, I don't know what that would look like, but it's certainly something that I'm very interested in understanding more and exploring more because I think that as long as power and education um, occurs within communities that are given equal rights and equal support to each other and have relationships to their local environments, I think that those are the really key foundational ingredients to creating um good societies that can be sustainable and aren't extracted. Let me add a point. So what I wanted to say is how expensive is education these days? Education is like a business. Do you guys agree or am I just... I, do, I totally agree with that. It's, yeah. it's a fucking business these days, guys. Let's be honest. Like, If someone wants to pursue a master's degree, the heck step. So Ashika, Hextet is your, uh, in India we take a loan to do our master's degrees abroad. Uh, okay. So you know how much that would be. It would be in... It would cost, yeah. Yeah, cost you like 4 million Indian rupees for you to go abroad and do your master's. So education is a business degree and with what Alenta is saying, I completely agree because with a community-based education, it's everyone's learning off of each other and it's not that say someone's interested in learning in environmental science. You don't just have to learn the basics of environmental science. You probably bump into someone that's a musician, someone that uh, kicks a ball, someone that plays soccer, someone that is an artist. So you come across various, uh, and this is a possibility. Is my is that too much uh, of a thing you, you think? Or would that be a possibility that you can bump into? all the people from different walks of life and that's what a community is about when when you're not charging a bomb for someone to learn you can for example you live around the beach you can learn surfing from someone that you can learn how to surf uh, in the beach uh, from someone that is a surfer and he or she is then learning say a, a musical instrument from you so it's like uh, it's like a beautiful barter system a much more and i think that's what we need bro like in I think that's what Clubhouse is actually doing. Yes. I yeah. totally agree with what you said. In terms because, of conversations. Yeah. Because here in India, you don't get to go to a school unless you pay your fees. They'll ask you the exactly. like, yeah, they'll, they'll, if you don't pay your fees, you're not going to school, you're not getting any education. Yeah, and where is the where is the democracy in that? So democracy is when you have a community where you can educate each other. Bro, there's so much. We're all good. Uh, gatekeepers of knowledge. Uh, uh, the fact that we care about the environment, everyone in this room right now cares about the environment, sustainability, and all these things. Except you, Ashik. You do. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
But, but seriously, let's be honest. The, this sort of knowledge is very important. I, I think a community-based way of life is the way forward. I mean, it's easier said than done, but uh, I, I think I really see that happening in the long run, you know, and probably it'll be one of us starting something. You never know, man. These things change overnight. Things happen overnight, and... Um, yeah. Can I just say that one of the current barriers to democratizing knowledge is institutional accreditations? Like, unless you've been credentialed by a university with this much prestige, who you've given this much money to, the knowledge that you might have doesn't exist. So you're kind of locked out. And I agree that there needs to be some kind of quality control, I guess, um, to stop fear-based conspiracy theories and um, non-scientific uh, ways of m medicine or whatever, like there's a lot of harm that can be done by people who are scammers and don't know what they're talking about, but there's a lot of good that can be done by democratising knowledge and not having to credential it and just having, I guess, more of a trust-based model um, for, for building knowledge and I don't know what that would look like. I just think that our current educational system is very powerful and very motivated by both money and power and is never going to teach us the skills to be more self-sufficient and how to stop existing within a globalised extractive economy because that doesn't serve the interests of the people who are at the top of the power pyramid. So we kind of... Yeah. Can I just add a point? Sure. The, I think the current education system teaches you how to uh, give back to uh, capitalism. Mm. <laughs> to be honest, that's that's what we're doing. We're just learning how to come back and work where we're not able to truly implement change. Mm. Uh, but we're just struggling because then there's how there's a hierarchy pyramid. Like you've got to climb up the ladder to truly. Uh, uh, Sort, sort of implement change, but then even when you get on top, there, there's politics. Mm. It's just, it's it's a power struggle. Mm. Anyways, look, there's Mitch has joined us. Hey, Mitch. So if you'd like to join us uh, up on stage, all you have to do is welcome to Clubhouse, by the way. Uh, <laughs> on you, I presume. Uh, it's really nice to have you. Uh, I don't know if you'll find the room interesting or not, but... Uh, if you'd like to have a chat, then all you have to do is raise your remote and you've got to raise your hand in the bottom right corner and then I'll just uh, invite. Oh, you have. Wait, I'm sorry. My bad. Okay, can I actually add something related to what you and Lenny had to say? Sure. So I think it's sad that uh, the education system is built that way. And it really needs to be revised. But uh, if you look at the current education system, the whole thing is actually interconnected because if you don't have proper education, then you might not land a great job. Mm. And then you actually don't, you miss out on all the benefits that the government or the society has to offer. Mm. And these benefits are only given to those taxpayers. And if you aren't paying taxes, especially in India, we are like the biggest democracy and we have like a population of 1.3 billion and you can only get your benefits as long as you've been earning a certain amount of money per annum or every month 
And if you don't, then you don't, you're not given those benefits, which is really sad. And that way, I think the whole education system has a very long role or a very big role to play within you know, all mm. these things because it's all interconnected mm. right from the beginning. So, yeah, that's what I want to I really, yeah, I just want to respond to that. I really agree with that because even if we did have a community where people were sharing knowledge, like where did we get our knowledge from? We got it from specializing in that educational skill set in the current educational systems that exist. So I don't think it's about a revolution towards this education system, um, you know, not being adequate or appropriate. I think it's got to be a, a co-evolution where we evolve towards something more communal and more democratic, um, but it kind of, it has to start in the institutions where they currently exist, and hopefully it can evolve organically towards a more democratic model of, of spreading critical thinking throughout a population. Um, but it's difficult for that to occur when knowledge and power is so centralised as it is in our current school and university system. So it's like, how do we get from point A to point B? But don't you think that if, if the society actually decided to give us all those benefits equally, then when it would actually hit saturation point, what, what then, like, what would happen when it actually hit saturation point, when everything is equal, like there's a lot of equity and diversity and inclusion and everything. So then, what would happen like, if there's so much, you know, uh, saturation in the market or in the society? Uh, my... Mitch, that's like, yes. Sorry, sorry. Can I, I just, I'll answer and then I'll introduce, I'll uh, say hi to yeah. Mitch, if that's okay. I, I think my end goal, I'm where... Sorry for interrupting. Oh, uh, okay. oh, sorry, Mitch. Hi, Mitch. Welcome to the room. It's really good to, to see you. Um, oh. Hi, hi <laughs> um, If you want to introduce hi. yourself, most of the people hi. in here are bush regenerators as well. Uh, yeah. Um... Uh, I'm not a bush regenerator anymore, but um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I just uh, um, only just came in. Sorry, I was busy. Oh, but yeah, it's interesting that you guys are having this conversation because I was actually having a conversation about the education system down at the beach with my partner this afternoon. Um, <laughs> and so to come on and hear this, I'm like, oh, wow, well, just picking up where I left off. <laughs> You're already fresh for it. You're ready. Um, and in what you were just saying, I, I do, it's interesting, I kind of think that there's an extreme to, to everything and the extreme on... Um, on the education system becoming too uh, too even, I think you were leading to, is has its own problems, and the extreme of complete inequality has a lot of problems as well. Mm -hmm. But you you lead lead off with what you were going to say, Alinta. Sorry. Thank you. Um, I was going to say that the um, the end point, the saturation point that my goal is, uh, and this is my personal goal, I don't know if it's a good one, but it's the one that I hold to, is that 
everyone can be self-sufficient. So there is enough skills in how we harvest our energy, in how we harvest our own food, in how we, in the kind of democratic decisions that we make, um, in order to live a life that where we can make ethical decisions because it often feels like we are compelled to go to supermarkets where we know products come from all over the world with very expensive shipping um, externalized costs to kind of slave labor in other countries but we don't have any choice but to live in that kind of model of commerce so by there being more of a, a skill-based um co-learning off each other and a way to kind of democratize knowledge building um even apps like this one is a really great way of people sharing knowledge or sharing opinions or debating thoughts but for me it's it's a way of empowering the common person to be able to be their own person and operate within their community in a way that is sustainable with their local environment and it is very different to the current model where it, it's if you're at the top of the hierarchical pyramid and you're the wealthiest 1%, you can do whatever you want to whoever you want to do it to and there are no repercussions. Um, but that's based on, on exploitation, on slave labour, on environmental destruction, on a whole ho host of really bad um, unsustainable practices. Um, I think my phone died. Can anyone hear me? Oh, good. No, it didn't. <laughs> oh, good. It didn't die. Woo! Um, and so, so for me, the end point is true democracy um, and with true individual empowerment and not, not being owned by very exploitative, extractive interests. But that's ideological. So whether that would be the end point or it's just the only methodology I can see for getting there, you know, I, I probably need to keep reading and keep thinking, but yeah, I wanted to bring it to a conversation anyway. Uh, have you read, are you on the Reddit forum, um, com uh, communism? <laughs> I just started looking into it and there's a lot of interesting information just to get an idea on how, uh, all of the, I'm not a, I'm not completely subscribed, but um, what are some of the ideas? What are some of the ideas? Oh, it's it's just every everything. People talking about all sorts of things, um, but a lot of articles outlining the fundamental um, factors to it and comparisons between different communist regimes from history and. Everything. It's an interesting Reddit, and I, I've only just started looking at it, but it touches on all of those. What's it called again? Our communism. communism. So it's com it's a communist. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> um, supper. Is that A R communism or A R E? Sorry, R uh, like Reddit. Ah, uh, like communism. communism. Oh. Okay. Check it out. That sounds really interesting. Not to be completely subscribed by communism, but I think it's 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 a good. Um, the information really balances out the middle ground in which I I see. I feel like 
capitalism, communism, all of the different ideologies, I think they need to, we need to come up with something that takes the, the benefits and, um, I don't know, I'm, I'm still at the beginning of my journey of <laughs> learning, so. Likewise, likewise, everyone's on the same journey. And I think I agree with you. There's always benefits to all these uh, systems and we, we can't look at the negative uh, aspect of it all the time. There's definitely benefits. And there's so much that you can take off of the negative, like even with a negative experience in life, you learn from it. So I think even with a flawed system, you just probably, like when Alinda was saying, the sort of products we buy and um, we don't really pay attention to where they come, where they're being sourced from and everything. I think those are little things in life that we can start paying attention to and, and even like even at work we talk about it a lot and I think uh, we, we can sort of be uh, I for example or you for example, any one of us can be an individual that can um, sort of implement that change by just having a conversation about it. People are, uh, we as human beings are not consciously aware because we, we're just blind to a lot of things. So when you have a conversation and it, it's a powerful one, I think people definitely open up. Like for the first, when I was 19 was the first time I stopped littering. I'm not proud of myself, but I saw a very good friend of mine, Madhav Mike in India, tell me, uh, tell a friend of mine that, so he had a piece of chocolate and then he just, just chucked the wrapper on the ground and then my friend my friend Barry Mike was like dude don't just don't just throw it there put it in your bag and then go throw it in the thing and I saw that and then from that day I haven't littered so I'm pretty proud of myself but I'm saying everyone is uh, people are visual learners they're audible learners so I think the power is in a conversation so it's it's really nice to have you here. Mitch really learned a lot about you. It's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, no, thanks. And it would be amazing if you brought more of your friends here next time. <laughs> Just, and I think that's how you uh, that's how you expand. And it's it's like the ripple effect. You just uh, you just uh, influence a larger audience, I guess. Yeah, I have a strong belief that um, constant conversation is. Uh, powerful. It it um it creates a ripple effect, and um, it evolves your own conversation, which continues to ripple out. And I think conversation is one of the few options for the future with such a rigid, rigid system and stubborn leaders. Mm. So, um, yeah, I I I like this. I was. I had an awesome idea of a group like this, only... <laughs> yeah, we, we heard about it. Wait, what was it called? Minefield. Uh, Minefield. Mind, Minefield, yeah. That's, sounds very powerful. Pretty awesome. But, well, here you are. Welcome. I just wanted to respond yeah. to what you said, um, Abhishek and Mitch, about I think the first step is conversation and the second step for implementation requires skills. So if we're going back to the supermarket example and if you know that the only thing that you can buy at the shops is shit from Italy, you may have on one hand the choice to grow it yourself if you had the right set of skills or 
um, Abhishek, you've been looking for a sustainable laptop and you've had no luck in finding something that is 100% sustainable in every single part of its supply chain and every single component that is flown from around the world to be compiled by some child slaves in, in Asia. Um, so if you had the skill of repairing something mechanic, then you could upcycle a laptop um you know, bearing in mind that there's a lot of toxic metals involved in that kind of thing. But, like, true sustainability starts as a conversation and the second way to back it up is to have the right set of skills in order to implement the change that you see. Um, so, yeah, I think I think there's more layers to it. Technology is a tough one. It's a... It's a... It's a snowball that just can't stop now because um, there seems to be an even uh, increase in need for data and a, a completely even parallel line of the increase of uh, storing data and um, as data's really important but yeah it, it all requires the minerals but the, the the big mineral is the batteries. Mm. The batteries are what um, require the the lithium ion. Yeah, and cobalt, I think. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then the smaller the batteries, that the problem is um, the small phones, pretty much phones and portable devices is the big thing that's trouble. Definitely. Definitely. So guys, uh, we, we are going to continue. Uh, Alinta is going to probably pay for my keep going. Uh, Manny and Callum, are you guys doing alright? Flash your mics if it's a yes. Awesome. So we'll continue. We go on for another 30 minutes and we see how we go. So every time we don't speak to Mitch, we just uh, mute our mics just to avoid any sort of uh, uh, noise or any, any, because it can be a problem. Like, just noise, say wind or traffic oh, or whatever, depending on where you are. But again, it's nice to have you here. Thanks for joining us. And we hopefully will see you every time in the future. Thanks. I, I'll, I'll get used to the how to um, <laughs> communicating yeah, over there. Yeah, it, 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 the user interface on this is super simple. It's, um, so you raise your hands at the bottom of the table to, uh, to join in as a speaker, and then uh, so you have the mic icon, which is obviously if you can turn it on and off, and if you do that means you're agreeing, like, well, that's you're, you're flashing your mic. That's when you agree with someone that you want to uh, you want to praise them for something they've said. Uh, and then if you want to leave, you can leave quietly, which is also at the bottom left corner. It says clearly that you can leave quietly. But it's fairly simple. Uh, hopefully you'll enjoy this app. And there's a lot of interesting groups out there as well. I'm pretty sure you'll enjoy this app. Uh, that's been out of the experience at least. Anyways, let's get back to it. Okay, so I'm going to talk a little bit more about the. Oh, yeah, I'm interested. Yep. I am going to talk a little bit 
more now about our current school system, I just wanted to start with a little aside, which was I was in such a state of two minds at the beginning of this year whether to pursue my master's. Um, I really want to pursue a master's and I've decided that I am going to do that um, in terms of what um, some local um, small-scale solutions to global problems could look like. And I think that right now university is the best way to ask those questions and get some answers, but I'm hoping that one of those answers will be democratised education. So I am keenly aware of the, um, the irony in my situation of going back to uni to, <laughs> to work out how to not need uni. <laughs> anyway, um, I'm going to continue uh, with a little, with a quote that I've lifted from a place, a website called geopolitics.us. And it's called Why Our School System is Broken. Our current school system was set up in the late 1800s and early 1900s to meet the needs of the industrial economy. Public schools supplied factories with a skilled labour force and provided basic literacy to the masses. This was the education that the vast majority of the population received. Secondary education supplied the managerial and professional leadership of the industrial economy. It provided more flexible and widely applicable skills that could be transferred across firms, industries and occupations. While only a fraction of the population in America attended high school, about 40% in 1935, no other nation in the world had such widespread coverage at the time. Higher education supplied the engineers, doctors and scientists, which facilitated rapid urbanisation and technological advancement for the economy. Still, less than 5% of the population attained this level of education in the 1940s. Our school system was modelled after the factories of the Industrial Revolution. Schools and factories are similar even to the point where the bells of these schools were modelled on the shift time sounds in factories. Schools operate similarly to assembly lines. The school assembly line is segmented into years. Students enter the schools and are sorted by age. Each day during the year, students receive instruction on a particular subject and skill set. Every subject is taught during a fixed time period or in the day. Students are then tested on each subject to see if they meet the standards so they can move along the line. Finally, they receive their stamp of approval diploma at the end of the line. And so I have a question, and the question is it is this. Do you think the structures of learning as they currently exist, school days spent inside an institutional building, partitioned into six to eight different subjects, all directed by a teacher instructor, are the best way for education can take place? And if not, what are some other models that could offer a different way, maybe even a self-directed way, of learning? I think, uh, sorry, I'm going to speak first. Can I? Okay. So, I think, uh, so one thing is that practical learning has always proved to be better than theory based learning. So, that's something that's not uh, practiced across the education, across the globe. Um, now that, you know, we have these online studies and all that, they have more of these practical uh, education, so that's one thing. And also the other thing is uh, mentorship, because having a teacher doesn't mean that being good at something you can be a teacher, and that also doesn't mean that you can be a great mentor. 
Mm. So I think having these things would bring actually a lot of equality and education, and everybody gets to learn, you know, the right way and stuff. So yeah, that's what I want to say. Um, I'll just say I once again not not completely addressing the point, but I I think everything can always. Uh, get better. Everything has its own evolution, so um, there's definitely a lot of growth and change that could happen to the education system via uh, figuring out what works and what doesn't, and I think that's that's forever with everything. Nothing's ever perfect, mm. um, and I don't think it can ever be perfect either, or probably should be have to accept some for, uh, you have to accept some imperfection but I I think there's a hell of a lot wrong with the education system. I came from a public school in Wollongong that was pretty horrendous and I don't I, I pretty much everything I learned was not from school. Mm. That's all I'll input for now. That leads re oh sorry Manny, you can go. Hi, I think that uh, a big problem with sort of the, the education system that you're talking about right now, the model of our system, is that it's sort of putting everyone into the same box where I think I've, I've spoken to a lot of people like me who struggled a lot in the system that we currently have because, uh, you know, learning abilities are sort of different to what we, we've been sort of like given. So, you know, being inside in an institution, um, being split up into all these different subjects, it's not necessarily helpful for some people who do a lot better with like tactile learning environments, like practical learning. Mm. Um, and I think that's something to consider that maybe like a change in that, in that way um, sort of different forms of teaching and learning might be sort of helpful. Um, but yeah. That leads really nicely into my next section, which I might just dive into, um, which it basically, um, actually I'll just read it. Um, let's consider the type of learning that is done in schools. Did you learn much? Me neither. The stress of upcoming assessments, the existential dread at never getting into university or being employable, the discipline, the forcing to learn skills you had no interest in, the competition with your peers starting from age five and continuing through university into the rat race, the doubt, the anxiety, the feelings of not being good enough, the submitting yourself to a process of total sublimination to earn some shitty credential, how can true learning even occur in such environments? You learn one thing, obedience. Come on, sheeple, say the educated to the uneducated, unknowingly gatekeepers of the very system that keeps people dumb. Sorry, I got a bit... <laughs> I just was on a writing thing. <laughs> Who needs an institution for that? Let's look at the science behind what happens what happens in the performance of complex complex tasks when external pressure is applied. Dynamogenic 
fear theory is a social psychological theory that elucidates how arousal facilitates the dominant response. The premise is simple. When an individual has to perform a task in an audience condition or a co-action condition, that is when they are watched or participate with another participant, they become aroused. This arousal involves the releasing of cortisol, which is a stress hormone. In tasks of simple, well-known actions, this arousal improves in performance. But in complex tasks involved, say, in learning some new complex principle, cortisol, the stress hormone, retards your ability to learn and your ability to perform. Um, RS, I'm just going to go on to the next section because I feel like we've already answered this question about whether you found find learning in a classroom more stressful than learning outside of the classroom. Um, actually, I'll ask the question. Did you ever find... Yeah, did anybody else want to add anything to that? Yeah. I'd maybe make a comment as a former classroom teacher. Um, uh-oh. <laughs> 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 no, I, 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 uh, I totally agree. I mean, one of the reasons that I left teaching was that I felt that it was, well, I'll tell you one observation that I had. Um, was that, and so, and uh, maybe thinking, I think back on it more now, I'm studying social work now, and I think back to that time, I was very, I was only, how old was I, I was 22, when I was, uh, I was teaching um, music and visual arts at a high school, and, um, and as part of that, you have to, you know, do, there's all sorts of other things you're doing, taking the roll calls, doing um, playground duty and all those things, but one thing that I... I find interesting looking back um, and at the time that I felt was that um, so much in order to uh, teach the things that I was uh, wanted to teach and I was supposed to teach the music, the visual arts and all that, whatever I was supposed to be doing um, with the large class sizes um, and with a whole range of students of varying experience and varying um, approaches to to learning and who would benefit from a really wide variety and individualised kind of um, ways of learning or like learning more tailored to them. Um, I found that I had to, in order to just get class to listen to you, you end up, or for me anyway, as a young woman at the time, it, so much of it was about power and control. Yeah. This idea of, you know, they talk about behaviour management, you've got to manage the behaviour of the, the students. The reason you have to manage behaviour is because the schools aren't set up um, as effective places of learning for everybody. They are for some people. Some kids can really thrive. Um, in that environment, but there are a lot who can't, and the pressure is to just sort of march through the curriculum and, you know, hope that you take, um, you know, the best and brightest with you, which uh, leaves a lot of people uh, behind who would be able to flourish, I believe, if, you know, the situation, you know, the kind of classroom environment is different. Anyway, I think back to that because you know, I went, I've gone on to study social work now and looking and, you know, studying about violence against women, for example, and looking at looking at this um, aspect of power and control. And 
I just, I think when I look back at that time, that you know, I was I was employing a lot of these yeah, power and control tactics, and a lot of teachers have to in order to just get through the content, which mm. sort of you know makes me think, what was I actually teaching these students? Mm. What you know, and what what is this? You know, why is the system really about dominating? Um, young people and, and, and teaching young people to be, um, you know, to learn how to be controlled and to control. And it's not all, I mean, that might sound like really extreme, and, but, uh, you know, I think about that quite a bit, but it, it was it was like that. I, I also think some amazing things happen in schools and there's some, you know, there are really great ways. And what Vish was saying is that things, you know, Things, uh, hopefully, you know, things need to improve, and then you know they'll probably never be perfect. Uh, but I, um, yeah, I, there's definitely room for improvement. <laughs> it's necessary to improve because evolution is exactly that. Everything is in a constant state of of transient evolution, Every, and I think humans should recognize that everything needs to constantly change slightly mm. everything mm. yeah i wholeheartedly agree and i think definitely yeah i definitely our education system i love one of the things i love to think about is the history of how things are you know the things we take for granted today how, where did that come from? And so, Alinta, that was really, um, I really enjoyed you talking about that, that history of the modern um, schooling system as it exists, you know, in, in Australia today. I find it fascinating. I think it just tells us so much about where, oh, it's a poor connection. Try to find a stronger signal. I'm not sure if you can hear me anymore, so sorry. Well, I, we can see, sorry, we can hear you. Oh, good, yes. Yeah. I, I think, um, uh, yeah, I think it's so important to understand that because if we understand the history, if we understand where we're coming from, then we can understand hopefully where we're, you know, the vague sort of direction in which we're we're heading. And uh, I think, um, yeah, there's, yeah, hopefully things, are, you know, there's a, there's a lot of amazing people out there. Someone was talking the other day um, about there's this book, uh, I can't remember what it's called. <laughs> teaching because she you know what she wanted to do within the system was not you know increasingly not possible and she went to England and you know they've got this Ofsted thing they're always um they're always coming and like you know like essentially I think what the my school website is in Australia if you guys are familiar with that it's you know a lot about um uh ranking student the schools based on student performance um and of course you know there are, there are a lot of things that go into that and, and, and also what, you know, is questionable maybe why why we're ranking schools and what, what you know, what measurements we're using and things like that. I can't remember what I'm talking about now anyway, but sorry. Well, I just, <laughs> just, just on that note, um, I feel like that is where the extreme of capitalism comes into play in its 
intense attachment to competition mm. and and creating a at some point there's always losers rather than a community that would look at its community as everyone has a part I feel like I feel like capitalism has a problematic attachment to yeah com- competitive sports mm. and um and so there will be losers that you leave behind. And I think that's where the, the ranking and how you said also with the curriculum seeming to accept that there's a percentage that won't, that won't keep up, um, I felt that definitely. I feel like that is the, the acceptance that uh, you leave people behind. Mm. Yeah, I think that it comes back down to values because it's this almost predatorial world that students are being primed for where they've got to um, out-compete their mates and leave them behind (laughs) instead of collaborating. And I think education is really where you can teach collaboration and when it's not about the teacher dominating with their will, you can have some really amazing learning that actually happens. So. I went to a performing arts school and I was so lucky because my interests were English and drama and art and I got to thrive in all of those things and I was supported and nourished and to a certain level I got to kind of, well, maybe not completely direct what I was doing but there was a lot of room for creativity in what I, in what my eventual assessments were. Um, and there was a lot of room for independent and critical thought and it was a very nurturing environment and I think that those kind of environments are being offered less and less with the introduction of NAPLAN and with the introduction of curriculums that are more heavily based around only English and maths and science because you lose the subjects where students might have more skill or interest or motivation to engage in Um, And then the other thing that I wanted to raise is that um, I've come across different models of schooling, um, some types of schooling which are kind of student-led. So you basically put a young student in a room full of very interesting, colourful stimuli and then they get to lead um, what they're interested in or maybe you'll plan a shopping list together and so you need to employ mathematics but it's very much the teacher on the fly designs lessons based around what that student and I think it's it's got smaller class sizes and it's much more of a nurturing environment but they seem to have a different way of relating to children um, and kind of supporting knowledge um, which, which instead of the student associating learning with something they don't want to do, the student stays curious, they stay imaginative, and, yeah, I think it's a much more nurturing environment than our current system. But, you know, we have so many people in a classroom and how can a, how can a teacher control them all or teach to a curriculum without these methods of dominance? Yeah, I think that's... Philippa, please go ahead. No, no, you, you go, Ashley. So I just wanted to say that 
I think it's also because of the monotony because you're sitting in classes for like eight hours mm-hmm. and you get a break off for uh, I think uh, half an hour or one hour and here in India you don't have PT hours because when you have PT hours the other teachers want to take extra classes to cover the portions so you really don't get time to get out of the class and that monotony makes it extremely boring and I think students shouldn't be blamed to be bad performers mm. because I remember I was an extremely bad performer in school but otherwise I think it's the monotony also that actually kind of you know uh, makes you lose interest in learning and stuff that's all I wanted to add Philippa did you have something you wanted to say? Um, I think I was about to say I've got some memory of a goldfish <laughs> oh yeah, I think probably, I mean, there's some amazing things happening around the world and I think we really have, we do have so much knowledge, so much knowledge is out there about really amazing teaching and learning practices and um, I, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's only a matter, I think, of, of uh, how much money, um, you know, is, the people who who have that and the people in power, you know, have are willing to throw at um, education and similarly the willpower to to imagine, uh, you know, really amazing systems of education, which people people have done and, and exist throughout the world. Um, people always talk about Finland, for example, and I mean, there's a lot of there's I, I think there's many more places surely um, than. Finland who are, you know, doing really, really incredible things and um, if we, yeah, I think that's really, if we, I think we should throw, throw money at, at the right, um, you know, places and people and, and get people with really, really amazing skills in and, because we could have just an amazing, really phenomenal educational system. Uh, it's really no, just, yeah. No, 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 go on, go on, go on. I just want to say, not, not even throw money, just democra- democratize power to the people. Mm. Because they say we live in a democracy, but really do we? Um, like very blindly, we are controlled in so many different ways. But let, let me give you an example of a documentary that I watched with Alinka recently, I forget the name, but they were, so this guy goes to Bangladesh where... Ah, 2040. Uh, 2040. Yeah, it's called 2040. It's pretty interesting. Uh, it actually. Have you guys watched it? I haven't yet, but I really want to. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. It, it, he. So we all we always have uh, uh, negative input with what's happening around the world, but that documentary then uh, is more optimistic about a, like a more sustainable future. So he goes into different parts of the world where doing different things in terms of energy consumption and um, uh, much more uh, democratized way of living. So he goes to Bangladesh where there's, this, there's a small village in Bangladesh where this, I think an 18 year old kid came up with an idea of uh, having solar panels on everybody's, uh, like everybody in the village, they decided that they'd have solar panels and then they, that way they wouldn't have to pay uh, an electricity bill, you know, they don't, they don't have to uh, 
pay to the government. They're making, they're, con they're, they're conserving so much uh, solar energy thanks to what they're doing that they can now give uh, uh, sort of share energy with other towns. Uh, so it's like that's what Alinta was talking about. So it, I forget what the concept was. Microgrid. It's, it's called, I think it's a microgrid or something where they, so a small town starts. Um, uh, sort of having solar panels on everybody's house and then um, they sort of it spreads on to the rest of the world I mean the rest of the uh, village and then um, basically they're conserving energy so these are little things they didn't want money I think they DIY'd everything they did it themselves so I think that's what we should be looking at off topic, but sorry, guys. There are two things that I want to say, um, and I think. No, just, sorry. Just quickly, what was that documentary before we forget it? It's called Twenty Forty. Twenty Forty. Twenty Forty. Okay, it's, it it's really a very hopeful look at what solutions are for the future. Um, and if you're feeling down about or existential about the climate crisis, um, I recommend watching it. <laughs> yeah. I just had a question related to the same documentary. So, one of the reasons we still don't make use of solar energy is because we because of storage spaces and all that. Mm -hmm. But I think it's not true because uh, it's that the oil and gas companies don't want to allow that to happen. So, do you all think that's true? I'll say it again. Almost a thousand percent. <laughs> so I said, I said uh, that actually uh, one of the reasons why uh, so you know renewable energy is still not very much in practice across the globe is because uh, they think they say that the the conflicts say that it's because we we lack storage spaces to store all the energy. But uh, I think that it's the oil and gas companies don't want to allow that to happen. Because then those industries would actually fall and that would really harm the economy and all that. So I, was, yeah, I just want to know if you all think that's true. Did you? Um, I definitely think that's true. There was only last month Greenpeace actually had a CEO of Exxon, one of the biggest oil gas companies in the world. They they pretended that they were headhunting him for a job and they got him on a job interview and they basically had him spill his guts that they were based, they straight, they have strategized the entire climate crisis since the beginning of it. They, they are constantly strategizing to um, avoid uh, doing things for the climate crisis because it's against their business model and it's against their um, yeah, I could link this interview. It's pretty shocking and it's pretty. It makes you pretty existential because these CEOs put their company and what they make money for above the end of the world, literally. Um, so I definitely think that's true. If I can link this that, um, video, it's quite scary. There's a mail function you'll find down the bottom. Um, you should be able to mail oh, everyone. Like so if you like that. Yeah. There's a little notch with a mail icon. So yeah, if you can 
stuck on that infographic, you can share it with the group. I will, but um, yeah, unfortunately we are up against uh, basically sociopathic, narcissistic people that know that the end of the world is coming and that's basically, they see it as a competition um, to allow yeah. that to happen because it's in their best interest. Uh, so, you some, uh, do you know about this person called uh, John Rockefeller, the world's first billionaire and the guy who started the, the first oil company called Standard Oil? Uh, only a little bit. Yeah, so uh, this guy, uh, you should actually read about this guy. Uh, so he was one of the first billionaires and uh, he, what he actually did was he really wanted to monopolize the oil and gas industry. So he went to the level of kind of manipulating the whole education system. And it's actually affected the world even today. It's, it's the world that we live in and that we see around us is in a way actually, you know, the world that he created because mm -hmm. of the education system that he kind of tried to spread because he had so much power and so much money to spend. Mm -hmm. So he went to a level where he had to he actually uh, manipulated the whole education system. He was, he had Harvard universities and Stanford, all these universities in his pocket. So he went to the level of doing this because he wanted to make sure that no future generation is actually going to be that creative, or they're not going to be taught what's necessary to be taught. Mm -hmm. And if they are taught anything that's necessary, then they would have a lot of competition, and that would make his this rainfall right. So they didn't want to perish. And that's why he went to a level of manipulating the whole thing, you know. It was a very, you know, narcissistic thing that he did. And one of the reasons he did this is because he had a very dark childhood where his dad was a psychopath and all that. So, so yeah, you should actually, you know, watch a documentary or read about this guy. He's crazy. I find that incredibly insightful. Sorry, Manny. Oh, sorry. Um, I've got to go. Sorry to cut it short. But Thanks I'm for really coming. We might wrap up soon anyway, so hopefully you don't miss out any and we can continue this. Um, yes, it's been very cool. Yeah, awesome. Hopefully you don't miss out too much. Okay. Um, okay see ya. See ya. Bye, Mami. I was just going to respond to you, Ashik, um, because it seems that control is a massive feature of the educational system, um, whether it's being designed by super millionaires and I can easily believe that that's the case um, or whether it's just about a, a teacher having to be more dominant in a, in a classroom. I also think that the teachers are to like my mum's a teacher and I think to a large level they are constrained by the amount of institutional pressures put on them. Um, so these days a teacher not only has to be a teacher, they have to be a counsellor and there are more and more traumatised children in the classroom. They have to be a nurse. They have to have EpiPen training. If so, if a kid has peanut allergy, they're liable. So they have to you know, be able to know what they should be doing legally. Um, they have to teach to a curriculum. They have to there's there's all of these things that don't leave a teacher, you know, a lot of mental space to actually 
really care about skilling the the children or the adults of the future in the things that they need to know or in life skills. So yeah, there's a lot of top-down control. And then the other thing that I want to say um, is that the technological innovation often happens in a really grassroots way. And when you have something top down that, you know, is suppressing that innovation by starving funding or by um, having copyright or all of these legal measures that the, the hyper-powerful can use in courts to stop innovation, then you, I, I just think that that's another reason why we need to democratise education and peel away all of these layers that really constrain um, people having access to the innovation that they need to live better lives. That's all I had to say. 100%, I definitely agree. 100%, yeah. But I also think um, kind of like democratizing education wouldn't, you know, solve all the problems because I was talking to Abhishek yesterday and I was telling him about this one uh, research by... Uh, McKinsey, where it said that um, in the United States of America, uh, you know, it's basically that for every dollar that a white man earns, a white woman would earn about 86 cents. That's 86 percent of how much the white man earns, no matter how good she is at what she does, no matter how much education she has. Mm. Likewise, when it comes to a black woman, she would earn only about 65 cents, that's 65% of how much a man would earn for every dollar. And then comes the, uh, the Latina and the Hispanic women. No matter how much education or how much knowledge they have, they still earn only 55 cents, that's 55% of every dollar that a man earns, a white man earns. So then, now, you're talking about women, and if you also consider men, and women both from different uh, social and community, so, you know, so different, uh, you know, uh, psychological or physical or uh, whatever reasons. So uh, what happens is, no matter how much knowledge or education you have, you're still not going to be able to match up to that level. So, mm. in that case, do you think education actually solves all the problems? I I think that we are. Um, I think there's an evolution. In with globalization happening, I think that this is a tale stemming from the white man conquering and having such problematic um, constructs to their civilization where we are still very much, our statistics show a big disparity but I do think that the statistics are far better than what they were, and I think they will continue to get better, especially with a lot of a lot of conversations and um, people standing up for themselves and globalization in general. Um, I, I I think it it is a, on one hand two two different matters the education compared to it but on on the other hand it's they do entwine with each other uh, but it's a matter of um, progressing with 
integrating with all of the cultures. I mean, mm. essentially, that's I I think personally that all of the cultures in the future should have a level of integration because we have saturated the earth so much and we are in so much connection with one another uh, um, com- in a communication sense we are going to all integrate our cultures and of course that doesn't I don't think that means losing culture um, I think we all hold on to the best parts of our culture but um, I, I think that in the future with complete integration of cultures that those things will be it'll be too difficult for the white man to hold their power and reign over everybody just purely based off of I mean capitalism goes against the white man's reign because capitalism puts profit over everything else which requires everybody to integrate for business purposes um yeah so i'll end there i think i think every culture has uh, its own flaws and we as a race human beings as a race we are problem solvers you can't expect to live in uh, utopia because that's what we do we solve problems uh, and that's what we wake up and yearn for every day. We, we want to solve a problem. We want to make the world a better place. And it's it's constant work and focus. And like you said, I think conversations definitely play a big role. Lily, what do you think? Should we call it a day? Um, I just wanted to touch on one last topic that, and then we can see if anyone has anything to say, just cause I said that we would circle back to it. Um, just to respond to Mitch though, um, I think my ideal would be to see, and this is what we started at the, at the beginning of the conversation, which you missed out on, but it was like, how do you, at the moment, our educational system has some voices that are privileged more than others. And I think that that relates to cultures as well. Um, And real integration, real cultural integration is where people's modalities and connections with their land or with their spirituality or with their ways of knowing are seen as just as valid and valuable as a Western style of, of thinking or a scientific paradigm. And I think the only good integration of cultures is going to have to happen in a context where the West isn't so dominant and that dominance is really led by a few powerful men who own the world. Um, but, you know, otherwise it's it's not integration, it's assimilation. And right now we have a very Western world that's just spread over over the world, no matter what your colour is, but it's not really working very well because it's cut people off from their ancestry, from their connections. And so I really think we need to rediscover local cultures and traditions and ways of knowing, and that can really um, make uh, perspectives much more rich and relationships much more rich. And I think that 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 would be a really beautiful world to live in. Um, And then the other thing... Thank you. The, the other thing that I wanted to touch on 
um, right before we finish, and I haven't actually written much about this, um, is an, a counterexample for I talked about how schools were really stressful, but I think if you could embed meditation or mindfulness into schools, which a lot of schools are doing because a lot of uh, students are finding that they're very stressed, um, that that could really help facilitate the learning journey. Um, and I've written this, um, I said, in contrast to the fear response generated by most educational institutions, true learning actually occurs when there is complete calmness of the mind. That is when your mind is free from all fear-based snags to dive deep into the information. True learning is borne out slowly with patience. Meditation trains stillness of mind, body, and spirit. True learning happens individually, or if taught, the teacher needs a depth of knowledge so that when they spin it out, the principles sing, the patterns are preserved, and the flash of deep insight conveyed is like diving into a pool of water and suddenly being completely refreshed, rejuvenated, liberated. True learning, if you're enjoying it, you're doing it right. Beyond learning skills, deep learning and teaching can only occur when there is a deep and unmuddied understanding of the topic at hand. Deeper understanding is like a tree. The deeper the first roots are, the more stable and more diverse topics you can have branching out. Miss out the roots and you have a bunch of twigs and leaves and a clump of dirt with a test to sit on epidermis structure. Um, so I just, yeah, I, I would just invite people to reflect on mindfulness and how that might have helped them in their own life because I know we started the conversation talking about Sam Harris and his um, fans as part of the clubhouse. Callum, would you like to add a point? Can't hear you. Sorry, can you hear me now? Yes. Yeah. Had a problem with my headphones. Yeah, I would add that um, I think mindfulness in an educational setting can be incredibly enriching on a personal level. So there was, um, we were talking earlier about how uh, a more individual sort of education system could be preferenced to um, just a big class setting sort of thing. So. If students in this sort of sense embrace their mindfulness, they'll sort of be able to understand what sort of learning they like more than other types of learning. Uh, the teacher would be able to identify that and strengthen that in the student, and there'll be a whole ripple effect with um, mindfulness as the catalyst to trigger uh, good learning opportunities in children. Um, so I think there's definitely like room and potential for that as an antidote to some of the, um, the pains in the modern educational system. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a practice that needs to be embedded in a study of the um, Because that level of conscious awareness is, is hard. As you grow up, you've gone through so much that uh, you implement it in your life. And it's important, but I think the sonar is implemented in um, people's lives, in kids' lives, I think. We, we just become a better uh, society globally. So, I mean, that's been, uh, this is us, I think, speaking out of experience. And 
no, I mean, I'm only speaking from like two months of experience, but Carol is accused of doing a fair bit months, seven to eight months for a year, is that right? Yeah, about seven months I've been practicing meditation now. Yeah. yeah, so there's so much value that adds to your daily life actually changes. You become more aware of the present every moment in your life, especially during these times where we're locked down and there's people complaining about being locked up. But even that is, uh, even being locked out is such a, that there's so much beauty in it. You uh, sort of can resonate with so many things in your life become your hobbies and you just become in tune with yourself. Mm -hmm. On that note, um, yeah, I've been really keen to start mindfulness for a long time, but I've, I've just had a few things to uh, get on top of before that, and I think I'm almost about to start doing that. But um, I, um, mindfulness is one aspect that would be awesome to a whole spectrum of things that can be brought into the education system or life in general. Um, and I was just thinking before about how I, I really like to use uh, the environment and uh, an ecosystem as a comparison to any subject, and that is um, the the environment has so many facets and so many things. There's a spectrum of things that lean off of each other to create a, a great balance. And um, much like the education system is the human mind and thought, and that is a humongous spectrum of things. Mm. So mindfulness is an awesome key to that. Uh, I think I had something else. I was, I was going somewhere, but I've forgotten where I was going. I wanted to just add that I think um, a lot of the problems that we face in Western society comes from this egoistic sense of greed, of like needing more, of needing to dominate. And to me, that underlines a inherent lived experience of stress where a, an individual is motivated to keep reaching for things outside of themselves and controlling things outside of themselves in order to try and get their own inner peace. So I think that mindfulness and meditation can play an even more transformational role than just education. I think it can particularly in times like now where we've got existential global crises like climate change confronting us, we need to find an inner well of peace and we need to be able to feel these emotions but not identify with them and learn how to be more emotionally resilient in order to deal with incredibly complex and wicked challenges that are facing us as a species. Um, but I also think that it's it can be a solution to the very problems like that are intrinsic in those people that are dominating the world because if they were mentally healthy, healthy and mentally mindful, they wouldn't need to be so controlling and so power-driven. Like they would find their peace from within. So, yeah, I just think I think it has real transform transformational properties. 
I would really love to hear what Callum has to say on his environmental projects and like sustainability is so huge. I've written stuff on climate change on, yeah, but like, I, I think there's so many topics that we could deep dive into, even if it's just weeding <laughs> techniques. Anyway. Um, so one of the things is when Abhishek actually got into this profession, I never thought that such kind of an profession actually existed because here in India, people don't even know about such things. Mm. And I think when he actually started talking to me about what they do and he actually became more aware of, you know, not to litter and how plastic works and everything, it actually gave me a great idea to work on plastic and I started doing this research on plastic and sustainability and all that. And it's actually getting somewhere today. And uh, you know, getting more people to share their ideas and stuff was to be great that way. I'm happy to let other people lead the room. I have a few sustainability topics myself, but if anyone wants to take a go one week, I'd be more than happy to, to hand it over. I think everybody's got amazing things to contribute. Well, if you don't mind, if, if, if possible, can we do it during another Sunday or something? Because then there'll be more people to share ideas. Yeah. If that's yeah, okay. It's not happening today. Though. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, Alan, would you? Oh, sorry, Mitch. Sure. Sure. Uh, I'll listen to whatever extra there is. I'm, I'm not doing anything, but whatever happens, it's fine. Okay, cool. Thanks for letting us know. Callum, would you be willing to talk about your project at some point? Your thesis? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Because uh, it's quite interesting, eh? We've learned so much. Mm, yeah, I've got lots to say about it, and I'm happy to answer questions. Um, uh, things like that, I can even share photographs and videos that I've collected over doing field work. Um, yeah, it's a lot to. I'm happy to share for sure. Sounds great. We should we we'll plan that out. Yeah. 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 I don't know how to. I'm willing to. And I'd be willing to call it Minefields because I think that's a great name. But I don't know how to start a club. What do you want to call it? But, but again, I'm, I, I, I don't know. I don't, is Mitch okay with that? If, if I can, yeah, I'm, I'm perfectly fine. Um, <laughs> my 
I'm not. I don't like to own things. I just like the idea of um, something being used. And I, uh, it was precisely talking about talking to Alinta made me start to think of this idea because Alinta really made me. I was really impressed by Alinta's level of um, critical thinking and the effort that she puts into just thinking about the future and solutions to things. And so it, was, it's, it wasn't my own creation, really. And if I can just explain the basic, what it means is, um, it's like when you talk about all this stuff, it's a, it's a big minefield, <laughs> mine, minefield of, of ideas that are, can be very difficult to, to have conversations about. So I just put the mind field and mind field. <laughs> that is that is, <laughs> that is pretty cool. That's a pretty, pretty awesome brief explanation. Thank you. Thank you for the kind words. That's okay. Pip, did you have to say something? Do I have to? <laughs> 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 you have to say <laughs> I, uh, no, I've just thoroughly enjoyed today's conversation and it's been really lovely and it's really nice to have a space to be able to talk about things, especially when I feel like I'm such a rambler because I'm not really, I don't always have these things that I haven't really necessarily talked about on the floor, I just sort of have these ideas and things floating around my head, so it's really nice to be able to sort of say stuff and then even as I say things, sometimes I think, oh, maybe I don't, you know, maybe the... I think everything you had to say was phenomenal. I've, at least for me, I've taken so much from it, so respect. Your, your uh, example of being a teacher and mm. uh, coming to realize your experience being a teacher was quite, uh, quite amazing. Thanks, Abby, and I really loved everything that you said too. I love everything everyone said too. It's been really, um, really fantastic. It's, it's been awesome having Callum and Mitch. It's generally, so the last couple of rooms have just been Adenta, myself, uh, Philippa, and Ashik. Ashik and I are brothers, uh, we're twins. So it's nice to have Callum and Mitch uh, and Manny. And Manny. We will have more people join the room over the coming uh, weeks, months. And it's it's nice if it becomes a thing. I think this so this is a community in, in, in itself, and I think we're just sharing so much knowledge. So imagine if uh, honestly, like uh, at, at, like the last couple of Sundays we've had this. Uh, when when we've stepped out of this room, it's just made the rest of my evening so much more pleasant. And it's very therapeutic to listen to people and. Um, uh, and I think uh, the idea that Mitch came up with uh, Mindfield sounds phenomenal. Like over the next few weeks or months, we can probably, uh, in collaboration with Mitch, name the room, uh, probably start a club at some point. But uh, if you have more friends, guys, it would be awesome if they joined in. Um, uh, but, but look, I, I personally am only learning. I'm not the greatest speaker. I, I moderate because Alinda is a phenomenal speaker and I really respect everything she has to say uh, every day. And it's, it's this app, I really want to thank Ashik 
for introducing me to this app and then we've managed to get get here this is pretty awesome this is pretty special and uh, i'd like to request pip to play her instrument only if if you have the time for like a couple of minutes to finish the room but before which uh, does anybody have anything else to say i just want to say yeah. oh sorry um oh just uh, a word of warning that video i linked it, it it's pretty dismal it can make you feel sad just remember that um what we're things like what we're doing here is is really positive and potentials for things like the video to be to be different in the future so don't let it get you down i guess thank you thank you thank you for the yeah um i wanted to say thank you to everyone for for coming to the room and uh engaging so fully and so deeply with the conversation it's really uh, been a great experience of exploring these different topographies of thought and i think a lot and i write a lot but i'm not always right so it's amazing to be able to throw around ideas and see what resonates and see what can be changed and i think that that is the key ingredient to critical thinking is what we is what we're practicing right now is we're thinking at each other we're talking through those thoughts and we're arriving at more informed and more well thought out um conclusions so thanks everyone for being part of that process I'm definitely I would add something ego dissolution as well but this whole is ego for Callum, uh, you were going to say something, I think. Uh, I was just flashing my mic in agreement, but I would like to thank everyone. It's been a really good uh, Sunday afternoon listening, um, and I'm keen for more talks. So big respect to everyone, and I'd like to wish everyone a good night. Have a, have a good afternoon. So yeah, I just wanted to say that uh, when Alenta and Abhishek first told me that. They're gonna do this room called critical thinking. I thought they were gonna talk about the critical thinking process because uh, me being a designer, we follow this design thinking process, which actually has sub process called critical thinking, which is a part of the design thinking process as a whole. So I thought it was gonna be about that. I yeah. started reading some of her, you know, articles. It it showed that you know it it was much deeper. It was. a whole other level so it was completely a new learning for me and uh, i really appreciate the amount of research and uh, you know how appropriate your research was and everything i really appreciate that and all the ideas that everybody shared thank you so much i actually have some more stuff on the mechanics of critical thinking itself and so that's what i'm hoping to get and dig more into next week and so if there's anything that you want to lead or any information that you want to prepare based on the work and study that you've done ashik uh next week would be an amazing um place for it i guess well i could talk to you about the process that we use in design it's called a design thinking process which is basically developed by one of these organizations called ideo which is the biggest uh, design organization in the world and they're the ones who actually designed the first mouse and so many other things for apple so 
we use this really amazing and really fun process for design, which also involves critical thinking. If you want me to talk about that, I could really talk about that because it's also a process that's very helpful for people who really want to start something or do something. So the process teaches them, you know, how to take something from scratch to making it something really big and, you know, continuously iterating the whole process and everything. So, yeah, probably I could talk about that for a while that, while you're talking about it. That sounds super interesting. Um, I could take half of it and you could take... Uh you could take the first hour if you want, or if you want me to start, I'd be happy to take the first hour. Up to you. Sure. sure but, you can, but you can stop me if it's out of, the, if it's out of context because it's totally about design and it's about how, you know, a product or any idea starts right from its, you know, right, right from scratch into, you know, when it sprouts and when it becomes a really big thing. So it's all about that. But it's a process that can be, you know, it's a discipline that can be used in many different ways and it can be practiced in different ways. So I think it's a perfect example. No, it's a perfect example of democratizing knowledge, which is exactly what we talked about today. So I think it's totally appropriate. You have this amazing expertise that you fit, you've um, built and it would be really interesting to hear about it. It would be interesting for me and I'm sure everybody else would find it engaging as well. Thank you so much. I suggest that uh, before each week, perhaps even directly after each week's uh, talk, that we post a, a headline and um, description of what the next week's uh, talk is going to be about and perhaps even go as far as to have a a, um, a board, a, a message board where people can uh, put information on in, in case anyone wants to read or sh for the, yeah. the talk. Yeah, and I'm only saying great. this as a... I think everybody will have to have great knowledge to share that. Yeah, that that's a great idea. That's a good idea, Mitch. So the message board is where you send that link. Because those are the only people that, at the moment, those are the only people coming into the room. So that's the message board. I'll just I can set something up though with everyone's emails, which is longer form, which has more of a um, where we can actually have a conversation about who wants to take. I think that's a great idea. I'll look into it. Philippa, if you've got your instrument ready, that would be really beautiful. Okay, I'm just going to, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm just going to improvise Feel free to just leave quietly at any point. Um, I'll try and keep it quick anyway. But Philippa, I should tell you, I actually listened to some of your mm -hmm. songs that you shared last time. They're very experimental. They're very experimental. So really <laughs> I'm sorry I didn't talk about it yet, but they were really fun. Oh, thanks so much, Ashika. Thank you so much for having a listen. Um, Alrighty.
a bit depressing, sorry. Thank you. I hope you all have a lovely evening. You too, guys. Thank you so much. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us today. Actually, I realized that I actually got something from everybody. Like, Callum for the great application. Some, some great ideas. And Philip for some great music. <laughs> and also some great ideas. Alenda for all the great ideas. moderating <laughs> <laughs> this long journey well. And some great ideas. Thank you so much. You too. We learned so much from you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a lovely time, guys. See you. See you soon. See you next week. We'll keep you posted about the next one. Sounds good. See you later, everybody. See ya. Bye. Bye.